Welcome to Get Psyched, a podcast brought to you by PsychSign. For this episode, join me, your host Arizu, and Dr. Russell Libby, a board member of the Physicians Foundation, for an in-depth discussion about promoting physician wellness and combating burnout. Before we delve into this topic, let's take a moment to understand the fundamentals of burnout. Physician burnout is a state of emotional, mental, and physical exhaustion experienced by doctors, often resulting from chronic workplace stress. While physicians dedicate their lives to caring for others, it is crucial for us to acknowledge and address the challenges we deal with. The statistics surrounding physician burnout and suicide are quite alarming. According to the American Medical Association, nearly 63% of physicians report signs of burnout. Shockingly, physicians are up to twice as likely to die by suicide compared to the general population. Administrative factors such as navigating complex electronic medical records and dealing with insurance requirements further compound the issue, contributing to medical errors, decreased job satisfaction, and even early retirement or career changes. The consequences of physician burnout extend beyond the individual. When doctors are burnt out, their ability to provide compassionate and empathetic care may be compromised. However, despite these challenges, there is hope. By gaining a deeper understanding of the causes of burnout, we can work to develop strategies to promote physician wellness and improve the overall healthcare system. This is Erzu back with another Psych Sign episode. Today we have a very special guest. Dr. Libby is the founder and president of the Virginia Pediatric Group in Fairfax, Virginia. He is an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and a board member of the Physicians Foundation. His areas of expertise and professional involvement include physician well-being, telemedicine, health policy development and advocacy, pediatric home care, and participation in organized medicine, including the American American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, and the Medical Society of Virginia. I'm going to take a breather before I give the floor to Dr. Libby. What an impressive resume. I'm so excited to talk to you today and learn so much from you. Please tell the listeners a little more about yourself. All right, Rosa. Thank you. Um, and it's great to be able to uh, to speak to students and to anyone who's interested in hearing anything that I have to say. But I will say that I am a pediatrician. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I grew up in the 60s, which gave me a time to sort of reflect on on what was going on in the world around me. And I can't say it's a lot different than the strife and, and issues that are going on right now in this world, where people seem to have really uh, a difficult time identifying their soft core, their humanity, their ability to relate and care about others. And so to me, um, medicine was a place where I could do that. Uh, and then pediatrics was a place where I could actually help develop the future rather than try to repair the past. Um, and I won't get further into it than that, but 
it was a motivating force that also gave me the opportunity to uh, to get involved and understand the dynamic of being a physician, but also uh, contributing to a better social and community outcome. Um, and so my my career has been um, more or less motivated by trying to build vision and buy-in on things that can make our world better. And I can't say that it's something that you necessarily easily do or that you see in all physician specialties, but certainly pediatrics is one of them. Uh, I started a primary care pediatric practice in Northern Virginia outside of DC. I trained at GW in Georgetown uh, in DC and then uh, started a, a practice that at that time, and you'll hear as a medical student, yeah, it was 24 seven. You had to work 100 hours a week. And the fact is that we did. It was just what you did. Uh, we didn't have pediatric specialists in the ER. We didn't have residents uh, necessarily in the hospital. Um, and your patients needed care 24-7. And so you did that. Uh, you met them in the ER. You met them at your office at night. And you were there at the office at 8 a.m. with a phone hour. And you worked until nobody else needed to be seen. And then you were accessible through the night. And you know, uh, starting out, uh, it was pretty exhausting, but you did a good job. You built a practice and you became um, a successful pediatrician. Through that course of time, um, you had patients, you had new providers and clinicians and physicians, whether they be um, uh, physicians or even uh, uh, advanced practice types. But we've we've worked with all kinds of uh, folks in the office. We have developmental specialties. We have neuropsychiatric issues. We have social workers. We have lactation. So we've developed a pretty big practice, uh, four offices and 20 clinicians. And so I continue to manage that. But I will say that uh, through the course of time, I recognized telemedicine was a big deal. And I um, started to develop access at my practice for teenagers who couldn't necessarily get in in that small window in the afternoon, especially in a busy suburban area with a lot of traffic. So we created a telemedicine component to the practice, integrated into the way we operate. And then all of a sudden COVID came and that telemedicine became the only vehicle by which you could gain access. And with that, I um, moved to the mountains in uh, Colorado where I live now. Uh, and I do telemedicine exclusively. Uh, I think I've been, uh, let's say, gifted that uh, 40 something years into practice and uh, provide a, a very important service and opportunity for access when there's nothing in the office and people have emergencies or can't get their kids out of the house to do it. So I'm in a very fortunate position where I can be in a setting that I really love to be and provide care to my patients, manage my practice and involve myself in the things that are so important uh, of which we're going to now start to talk more about so tell me what you want me to talk about next sure i just want to actually touch on a few things you said yes. I, I thought it was so interesting how you were able to you know your upbringing in the 60s kind of motivated your decision to pursue medicine i think that's such mm -hmm. a beautiful uh thing to be able to recognize in your own journey and and i also thought it was so interesting when you said that you you went into pediatrics because because you wanted to develop, you know, you wanted to nurture and develop the future rather than repair, which is so funny because 
you know, I shared with you before we started recording that I want to do psychiatry and a lot of psychiatry is repairing the past. Um, So it's so funny how you can have people, you know, interested in medicine on two different ends of a spectrum, people that want to shape the future, but also people that want to heal the traumas of the past. And I think it's so beautiful that there's a space for all of us to do just all of those things across the spectrum. Um, And wow, what a journey for your practice. You know, I think the landscape of medicine is so different. We don't, you know, we don't have what you had when you were working 100 hours a week. We legally should not and cannot be doing that. And so it's so different. Like if I wanted to start a practice, I'm. it might be a little harder to start a practice, but I'd probably start one with, you know, a few other partners and then we'd take turns, you know, taking on the, the patient, the patient load. But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily work 100 hours day and night trying to, uh, you know, take care of my patients. And so I applaud you for your work there and 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 congratulate you on now being able to practice, you know, remotely full time um, in the beautiful mountains of Colorado. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I could I, um, and I could talk to you a lot more. We could have a number of podcasts for the different oh, yeah. components of this. Uh, but yes, uh you're right. Pediatrics, and this is a whole other area that I could spend a lot of time talking to you about. Pediatrics is basically the child in the room of adult medicine. And we are more or less uh, ignored to a great extent. And uh, we get an allowance. And that allowance isn't enough to really sustain an independent practicing uh, core of effective and integrated pediatric services. And as I say, the future, uh, and we look at the past when we look at uh, adverse childhood events, experiences, Mm -hmm. um, and we know that impact on the long-term outcome of health and mental health. um, You've got a really significant area there that that could be addressed in ways that should be rewarded. And I won't get into all of that, but that, you know, my involvement with the American Academy of Pediatrics has been all about that. I also started a home care agency because I believe kids should not ever be in the hospital except for the most acute and and clinically clinically significant moments in their existence. And that most that we do there can be done in a hospital at home or in an advanced uh, setting whereby uh, there's home care support. and, And now with telemedicine, your physician support. Anyway, we won't get into that because we're here to talk about <laughs> other things that are related yes. to, to wellness. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you so much for all that you've done. And I think that last bit was especially beautiful, like creating a space for children to, you know, so they're not stuck in the hospitals and they don't have to spend their childhood in that. But we could, you know, spend a long time talking long about time. that. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. You are a board member of the Physicians Foundation, and that's... Right pretty much what we're here to talk about. So can you tell us what the Physicians Foundation is? Well, let's say through the course of practice, um, you have to generate revenue. And there was a time when it was fee for service. You came in, I provided a service, you you valued that service, you paid for it, you left. Um, And that was the practice of medicine. Uh, And so there were components of it that were higher cost and you had insurance that covered that, but it was always, it was out of pocket and you had reimbursement mechanisms through your health insurance, but that was then. Then in the 90s, coming off of uh, what were interesting discussions on how do you focus on the wellness and create an opportunity for patients to be in a system 
that would provide care without having to worry about paying each time they went in so they would not be disincentivized to seek care. Uh, the whole managed care industry evolved. This was initially the HMO, um, mm -hmm. our health maintenance organization concept, which was basically capitate your physician. You have a relationship with them. They'll keep you well. They're going to get paid based upon an annualized expectation, an average of income that's needed to sustain and thrive and practice and take care of you. So that started off pretty well. Then many of the insurance companies started to recognize that this was a whole opportunity in a marketplace. And the long and the short of it is they created a bunch of different products that were attractive, that separated the patient's encounter from the payment and gave doctors some decent reimbursement opportunities or payment opportunities. And the next thing you knew, they were exploiting a new category of physician um, willingness to participate and employer willingness to employ. Instead of giving raises, there was a, a focus on providing benefits. And one of the big benefits was mm. health insurance. So into the 90s, we saw this explosion in California, the West Coast. It tended to develop more quickly, more comprehensively, and still sustained itself better. On the East Coast, it came a little more slowly. And as that experience grew, payers started to manipulate patients and their clinicians and their physicians. And so what you thought you were getting paid for in this plan, all of a sudden they were switching to another. Everything was submitted on paper. They'd lose the paper. You'd have to resubmit. They'd pay under or change the way you build, et cetera, et cetera. There were a lot of egregious or, let's say, undesirable business practices being employed. And ultimately, there was enough evidence that in a few states, physicians banded together and created what they call class actions, which basically mean that you have... Uh, a, a lawsuit that not just represents you, but there's enough involved that when you hit a critical mass, you can then get a class action that represents you and all of those in your industry. Uh, you hear it all the time with Camp Lejeune water or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, but don't drink the water. Um, anyway, so we put together some states and then all of a sudden there were actually um, uh, some let's say, some actions that were being combined, and ultimately we ended up as a national class. And so it, the original founders of this class action were 19 state medical societies and three county societies. Mm -hmm. I represented one of the counties because my state felt threatened by the class action that maybe they not succeed and they would have retribution from the managed care insurance companies. We're pretty rich and pretty powerful then too. Anyway, the long story is that ultimately we had worked through and had some pretty darn good evidence that was irrefutable, would have taken a number of years to go through the courts. But one of the payers at the in 2001 or two or somewhere in there decided, yeah, let's negotiate this out. Let's let's come up with a settlement in that settlement. Uh, we were able to get a uh, change in business practices. I mean, the <laughs> all of the so many of the things we take for granted relative to our relationships and the payment models that we live within came from that settlement. And another thing came out of that settlement, and that was ultimately the, the settlement, which was also uh, reproduced with seven other payers, you know, to the tune of about $2 billion, of which much was in uh, 
prospective payment change, in other words, changing the way they did business, but also distributing three or four hundred dollars a piece to um, a, a multitude of physicians so that mm. uh, there was a large chunk of money that was going out, much of which wasn't necessarily being cashed or much of which wasn't being acknowledged or whatever it might be. And at the same time, we created the foundation. And I won't get into all of those details, but the Physicians Foundation was created in 2003. It received about $20 million originally from the settlements, but then all of a sudden got maybe another 70 or $80 million from those checks that were never cashed or that mm. were reverted to the foundation. So ultimately it became an entity. And and with that, you know, it it really was something that that was of significance and had a great great potential. And basically that was to support and empower physicians. And to do that to support the the way they can care for their patients as well as to support the values and and the goals of our credo as physicians. And so we want to have influence on how we practice, how we uh, sustain the quality of practice, and how we shape the future of healthcare delivery. And we want to be the leaders. We think that physicians are the most educated, the most capable of being those leaders. And so that's pretty much what has been the driving force behind the foundation. Um, The foundation has evolved dramatically over the years. We put out grants every year uh, we try to help support uh, research and uh, to help with leadership. We actually have now areas of focus, and those areas of focus basically um, are uh, physician leadership, physician wellness, uh, physician practice, and drivers of social drivers of health. Uh, that is an area that we're committed to because we feel that certainly uh, some might call them social determinants of health. We have adopted the newer concept that it's not a determinant, it's just a driver of health when you have, um, you know, the social situations whereby your food, shelter, uh, education, healthcare, whatever you want to call it, uh, let's say, uh, challenged. And so we feel that that has to be a part of the conclusion uh, that if we're going to improve things, we have to address it from every direction. And we have a society that will only be healthy once all of us in the society are healthy. So that's where we are. So, okay, I think I'll stop and let you ask more questions. Keep (laughs) lecturing, all right? No, that was great. I loved the whole history lesson. And also, it's so important to understand, like, where this all came from, that it stemmed from, you know, a class action lawsuit is so speaks to the importance of organizing and and the power that that, you know, allows us to have over even major, major corporations like health insurance companies or pharmaceuticals. And we hear so much now about pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies kind of taking away from the patient experience and and driving up costs for physicians. And so it's it's amazing to see that we actually had a success one of these times um, as physicians collectively. So that's awesome. Um, and and it's so cool. Like, I, I never really knew about the Physicians Foundation, but it sounds like it sounds like it, it provides a variety of services and um, 
advocates on behalf of physicians to kind of create a better landscape for practicing medicine. And, and I love that you, um, you know, touched on the social drivers of health. I've never re- heard it referred to that way, but I think that it's important that you acknowledge the difference between a determinant and a driver and that those social drivers of health aren't necessarily going to be the end all be all of someone's health, but that they certainly contribute, uh, you know, in a, in a major way to someone's health outcomes. And so uh, <laughs> thank you for educating me on, on that well, aspect. I'm glad you uh, <laughs> could understand it and, and repeat it in the way you did because you have uh, crystallized it. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. It sounds like you guys do a lot of work in a lot of different areas. You talked about, you know, providing grants, supporting medical, biomedical research. You talked about, you know, having a leadership component, having a wellness component, clinical practice, and then again, those social driver components. Um, Can you tell us what the Physicians Foundation has accomplished uh, specifically in the realm of physician wellness? Sure, I'll, I'll tell you about that. But And there's so many other facets to the work that we've done. It, it takes a long time to develop a purpose, especially when it's strictly altruistic and, and professionally supportive and really tries to, to elevate the ideals, the virtues, the values, and not focus on some of the more frustrating elements of what happens in medicine and in particular yes. <laughs> within the profession. So it is trying to sustain a, a real measure of, of accomplishment. And it takes time to develop that awareness, that network, that recognition, and the ability yes. to connect with uh, your stakeholders as well as with those who can affect, influence, and change um, mm-hmm. the paradigms that sometimes are frustrating, <clears throat> and many of which have impacted physician wellness. So Mm-hmm. Let's say as we went from doing things, because initially it was about state medical organizations and it was about making sure that we rewarded those who helped to change what happened with uh, the payers in this uh, this evolution. And I, you know, I can say that that to transition to electronic submission, um, a number of business practices that used to really be abusive without being consistent uh, you know, whether it be for coding, payment, uh, patient care, whatever it might be, those were all challenged and many of them were committed to in these settlements in ways that really benefited uh, patients. And that's what the ultimate goal was. <clears throat> to be able to sustain practice is important because you can't take care of patients if you can't take care of your practice. So these were all really important evolutions. And it took a while for us to get the bandwidth and the let's say, the the expertise to be able to start to address some of these issues. Physician wellness became a a particularly uh, apparent issue because there was so much frustration and so much consternation about how we practice. We knew that there was a component of physician dysfunction that was often, you know, manifested in uh, anger and substance abuse, sometimes suicide, um, but these were more exceptional elements. But as mm-hmm. we started to look at these things, we realized this is a real driving force and and the practice environment and the really the, the personality and the motivating personality of a physician is one that predisposes them 
to dealing with stress and sometimes not dealing with it in a in a healthy manner. And mm-hmm. it would impact them and their families and their professional relationships. And as time went on, we started to recognize that there were lots of outside and internal influences there. And somewhere around 2016 or so, I think um, we started to focus on this. And I reached out because I was involved with the AMA and other organizations. And the AMA had undergone a a reorganization and they had a professional area called the uh, uh, Physician Satisfaction and Sustainability. And Christine Sinsky uh, led this up. She was an internist from the Midwest, but mm-hmm. she was focused and published on uh, burnout. Basically, that was the original yes. concept. It wasn't wellness. Yeah. It was burnout. We didn't care mm-hmm. about if you were well or not. But if you were burned out, that was an issue. So we started <laughs> to convene a group to look at where are we? What are we using to measure? What has been evaluated? And what do we understand about burnout and its impact on physician practice, physician careers, and their care of patients. And so we started to develop a baseline, started to identify areas where there was, let's say, inadequate research, um, started to develop ways to network and pull together some of the issues. There are a couple of conferences, one, the International Conference on Physician Health, which has been so successful that we, and it's every other year between uh, the between England, Canada, and the U.S., that we decided that, you know, we should, in these alternate years, do an American conference on physician health. So every year we have a three-day conference where we talk about what people are doing, what research has been undertaken, and so that those thought leaders and research leaders and organizers can present information and share it with others who are interested and start to create an information base that we can grow with. So, Ultimately, we were involved at at the inception of this, and for the Physicians Foundation, uh, we created and committed some grant money for an annualized set of projects, some of which were research. So we put out RFPs on, um, you know, what are the things you can do to improve the well-being of physicians? Simple Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Two, uh, is mentoring a potential solution or at least something that can reduce or improve the outcomes from burnout. Um, Another, women, uh, there became such an evident paucity of information and focus on women. And the fact is that, you know, the majority of medical students right now are women. So -hmm. the workforce is hugely women and they deal with a very different set of factors. We know that that burnout and depression and um, uh, suicide and all of those things related to burnout and, and not wellness uh, are more significant in women. Um, mm-hmm. And that there are, are so many attendant factors that are unique and really need to be addressed. But once again, it's, it's always been a fa- fairly paternalistic profession and mm-hmm. even women within that realm had to more or less take on those qualities rather than be who they were and be the mom and be the organizer of the household and and be the most compassionate physician they can be etc so do some research there so we we did sponsor research and to help uh organizations develop their own wellness programs that was a big issue for us as well 
So we started with that. And then after a few years, as we started to look at the information that was accumulating, we continued to have these dialogues. And as an organization that represented state medical organizations in its first inception, we decided, you know, we have to be able to now start to look at what does wellness do to the setting it impacts. In other words, we have um, many factors within our practice that may contribute to a sense of burnout and uh, and challenge our well-being. How do we quantify this? How do we understand it? And let's see if we can implement some change mm-hmm. in physician practices so that we can monitor, do the research, and then report on it. So we created something called the the Practice Transformation Initiative, and we this is in in collaboration with the AMA and. We then put grants out to state medical organizations to incorporate physician practices and to learn how to help them change and improve the way they practiced. So that is typically systemic. It's, uh, it is it uh, is system redesigned to some extent, but we mm-hmm. picked specific areas. So one of the things that we created at the AMA was the Steps Forward program. If you've ever looked at that, it's really worth looking at it. Um, it's open to all. You don't even have to be a member to be able to look, but the index of things that you can do to change the way you practice, as well as many other things. But this is what we were using as a basis to be able to measure um, how that impacted physician practice and your sense of satisfaction, well-being, et cetera. And once again, knowing how impactful burnout can be on, you know, well, on practice sustainability cost access to care, quality outcomes, you name it, we figured this was a really good investment. So we did that. And we did two rounds of that. Unfortunately, COVID sort of got in the way of being able to measure things effectively. But we involved uh, seven uh, state medical organizations and physician practices within their organizations. And we got some pretty decent um, information that way. And I could keep going, but let's say we also <laughs> got very deeply involved in um, understanding the EMR and its impact on mm. uh, on your quality of relationship with the physician and uh, with your patients, I'm sorry, and how it is actually a barrier uh, both to your ability to relate to, take care of, and understand the needs of your patients and became one of the greatest areas of stress for physicians where they could spend a two to one ratio of time on the computer versus actually face to face with their patients because they are required to enter data, uh, mm-hmm. both for billing, which is what their system or their practice setting would require and ultimately uh, prioritize, um, or just to be able to meet quality metrics or to have some kind of required input, often irrelevant, but basically we became clerks. And we still act act as clerks doing that to a great extent. But nonetheless, there's potential there. I won't get into that. (laughs) So, you know, there are so many areas there that that we started to recognize, gee, these are places we need to go. So we started uh, something called the uh, the physician, uh, the patient physician and computer uh, series. This is a an international summit that would uh, meet at Brown University. We've had three uh biannual um episodes of that um Mm -hmm. which have been pretty remarkable we've uh sponsored uh just so many um 
important initiatives and uh, conferences and have tried to create a collaborative back, backbone for all the wellness. And the other thing that we do is we participate in uh, something called All In, which came out of the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation and, and a, a group of stakeholders who felt that we need a bigger platform and actually are responsible for um, the um, Lorna Breen um, uh, Providers Wellbeing Act or something that, that came through the Congress last year. Anyway, I'll stop there for a second um, and I can keep going, but <laughs> you tell me what to do. I could go on for a long time. No, I love it. I think you gave us such a wealth of information about what this foundation does. Um, and I think it's important like, to think about, for instance, when I first started to hear about physician wellness and physician burnout was around the time that we had the pandemic a few years ago. That was when this conversation of physician burnout came to the forefront of, you know, national rhetoric and national conversation. And, you know, that's when we first as a country started discussing, okay, what is the impact of a worldwide pandemic on our healthcare providers, you know? And, and the thing is, it had been an issue for so many years before that, but that's kind of when it became, you know, part of the national conversation. And I applaud the foundation for its work for, you know, years be before that. Um, and I, th I think it's so important that the foundation and, you know, the people involved took their time with trying to figure out what are the factors that impact physician wellness? How do we quantify this in a meaningful way so we can actually track changes and track outcomes across in this field? Uh, I think that's so important to be able to show that physician wellness actually does make a difference and actually does, you know, in both the physicians' lives and also their patients' lives. And, and so uh, it was beautifully said on your part, you know, all the different uh, initiatives and and programs that you guys have to offer. These are all things I'm going to be looking up after our meeting because it sounds like great resources for physicians to know about. Um and so that that's absolutely incredible work. And I, and I think it's important that you also mention the EMR. I can, there are so many physicians I've talked to that the EMR is just the bane of their existence. And so I love that you guys even have a summit dedicated to that so that you can kind of tackle this issue from many different angles because it isn't a one-sided issue. And that's so important to acknowledge. Another thing that I thought was really amazing was the fact that um, there is a, a focus on how women are impacted by some of these, the environment of, you know, the very masculine environment of, of medicine and how, um, you know, a lot of women had had to adapt to fit into this, to this, uh, into this work environment, but that that's not necessarily conducive to their lives as women and mothers and having families and all of that. So I love that you, I love that you touched on that. Um, so, so much to talk about, but really? I want to, yeah. yeah, but I would love to ask what you are excited about for the future of uh, physician wellness. Well, I, I will. And I'll tell you the thing that's interesting. So it's how you amplify and how you create buy-in. And so with the wellness for women, um, I've been working with the American Academy of Pediatrics, right? We started something called um, the Women's Wellness Equity and Leadership Track. And this is basically incorporating major medical associations across the country, AAFP, um, the ACOG, uh, the National mm. Medical Association, Hispanic Physicians Association, you you can name 10 organizations that are all involved and they are developing early career 
physician, women physicians, to understand the opportunities for leadership, to be able to advocate and to elevate their organizations to participate in this um, this initiative. So, you know, it's not just me. It's it's you know, it's it's really how you bring people together, how you elevate a cause, and like what you're doing with PsychSign, uh, you're mm-hmm. trying to create an awareness. Now, one thing that we are very clear on is that the um, the remarkable impact of motivation, competition, and an achievement that gets you to medical school is like it's like going up a mountain, think you're going to look at you know from Mount Everest and realize you're just on a on a small hill. Um, <laughs> you know, you got a long way to go. Um, so the view doesn't get big until you have really been able to come to terms with what is big for you. So, you know, becoming a physician is a very difficult process that we take for granted because that's where we want to go. But there's a lot of opportunity for disappointment. And we know that that the the most precipitous time for physician or physicians and learning is as a medical student, where all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're challenged. It's not, all right, I'm going to be a doctor. Oh no, I don't know anything. I've never touched a patient. You know, I yeah, I was the emergency room and I I was a volunteer, but there's a big difference between knowing what you're doing and wanting to do it. <laughs> and there's a lot of information and experience in between, and there's a huge opportunity to become disappointed, to become uh, disenchanted with yourself, to mm-hmm. doubt yourself. Imposter syndrome is a big deal, but we know that at least a third of of medical students in that sequence of time, once again, why are they medical students? They're perfectionists. They're compelled. Yes. <laughs> they they work hard, and there's nothing more dis, disgruntling or disheartening than to not be able to be perfect immediately. And mm-hmm. you're in a setting, in a situation, an educational system that doesn't necessarily support you and your individual and epigenetic backgrounds. Uh, there are so many factors that weigh in and so much of it is taken for granted. And once again, that paternalistic attitude that suck mm-hmm. it up, you'll be okay. If you want to be a doctor, this is what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But there are so many, let's say, so many false steps along the way that we take for granted that we can get over when in fact we can't. And so we develop uh, certain attitudes, certain inadequacies, and certain difficulties that really do impact us and come back to haunt us through the course of our profession. And I know it's hard to say, looking forward, that's what you have to think about. But where can you start the process to acknowledge where we come from, how it impacts our ability to learn, and to find joy in the work that we do, because that's how we do the best work we can do. If we're happy with who we are and what we're doing, we're going to do the best for our patients. And when we're yes. not, we have it clear. We've done the research. Yeah, you provide inadequate care. It costs more. It's not as, as as uh, let's say, the outcomes aren't nearly as good. You don't stay in your job as long. Your family suffers. You have a, a high risk for substance abuse. You have a risk for suicide. You're in a mm-hmm. setting where we won't acknowledge that need. You can't access care easily. Um, and it's it's difficult. So we know these things up front and it's not like, you know, uh, 
mindfulness meditation or you know getting out and doing a two-mile run is going to cure you it's certainly Mm -hmm. something that's supportive but my most exciting uh vision and one that it's really difficult to get the buy-in because people sort of say all right you've done all this stuff that's enough let's focus on something else (laughs) well i think that we have a whole opportunity here to start to use technology to understand the organism how do we react to situations what are the measures that we can wear you know an apple watch or a -hmm. mood ring or whatever you want to call it and learn about how you react in different settings understand where your your precipitating moments might be where you do become disengaged where you do become too fatigued where you have not Mm -hmm. been able to sustain you got genetic analysis and you've got some people looking at this um uh, Srijan Sen is an amazing guy, University of Michigan. He he looks at first year residents and he measures them in a number of different ways, getting actually a, a swab, looking at their genetics and wow. evaluating them for depression and monitoring how their emotional state evolves through the first year of, of their experience as a physician mm-hmm. and then onward. But to me right now, it's wearables. Um understanding what the physical elements are, understanding how that that epigenetic component of where you live, where you grew up, um, your ethnicity, your um, spirituality, whatever it might be. I think there's so much to learn about the individual. And I think as a medical student, to have that as part of an understanding as to how to keep you as healthy as possible. My God, our elite athletes, you think that that nobody cares if they if they go and play a pickup game of basketball somewhere and twist their ankle, you know, it, it's not that. No, we need to understand what you're doing, how you're doing it, and how we can best support you so that you can do the best you can and have a long and fruitful career. Um, that's really important. And it, it's not something that people can see how you get there. Sure, have system buy-in, give you a little opportunity to be uh, an administrator so you understand what we're doing and you know, will improve. Yes, I think AI is a big part of it. I think that getting the EMR out of our daily uh, chore list and making it a more passive component of our patient-physician relationship would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to build in facets of it uh, so that it makes your day more streamlined and less clerical, great. That's going to reduce burnout. But there's so many other components to this. And I think understanding your physiology, your genetics, your setting, your situation, and your needs individually are really what's going to be the most important thing for you as a student looking forward. And uh, once again, it's one of those things that you have to help support and uh, and advocate for. Because really, uh, we see that that there is a heck of a lot of dysfunction in adult physicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're a kid physician, right? But in, <laughs> you know, in the evolution, yeah, you become a, a, a very competent and capable uh, physician as time goes on. But there are many areas there that uh, that are susceptible to uh, dysfunction, and we need to help to reduce that. Yes, yes. I, I loved your response. I thought it was so 
actually encouraging for a kid physician like myself uh, to have, yeah, to have, to have someone like you and many more, you know, successful physicians um, using your platform to amplify and elevate uh, the cause for the up and coming physicians that, um, you know, we don't necessarily know what we're doing. We don't know exactly what we're in store for. Right. And so it's amazing to have you guys on our side and and advocate for us in the different ways that you do, Um, especially thinking about thinking towards the future and thinking about, you know, we are actually currently in a physician shortage. It's it's not coming. It, we're here and it's only going to get worse. And so thinking about that and keeping that in mind, I think it's important to continue to prioritize physician wellness and not necessarily say, uh, yeah, so we've done a lot for this cause. Um, I think it's time to move on to a different cause. No, it's time to go, you know, tenfold on this cause and really get into the nitty gritty and understand how and where exactly we can support physicians so that in the long term and the longevity of their careers, they feel supported and they they feel healthy and joyful in their work. Because yeah. like you so beautifully said, you know, if we find joy in our work, then we do our best work. And and I think that's that that's inspiring for sure. Um Thank you for sharing everything that you've shared today. I do have one last question. If you had to give a medical student who who wants to maintain their wellness throughout, you know, their journey in medicine, what what one piece of advice would you give them? Well, you know, one thing I just want to add to what you were saying mm-hmm. is we are given an incredible privilege by being physicians. Not only, I mean, I could say a long list, but not only by virtue of the the learning that we uh, we go through in our opportunities mm-hmm. to take care of and make lives better, um, make our patients' lives better, but um, and to impact our society in in many positive ways. But we're mm-hmm. also given the opportunity to do things that m- no other profession could do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you are given a pass. You are educated. You are respected. Therefore, you would be a great candidate for anything you want to do. So. It is a privilege. And of course, taking care of patients is such a privilege. You go into a room every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20, whatever it takes, but you are validated repeatedly every day. And yeah, there are very few jobs true. that you can get that kind of reinforcement, you know, and inspiration. Yeah. And if that doesn't give you a positive sense, you may have to mm-hmm. question why you're doing it. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, um, you know, for students, it is just that. Realize that this is the biggest privilege you could ever have achieved. And you've done this. You've gotten that opportunity. Take advantage of it. Realize that it's bigger than you, that what you do is what impacts the future of humankind, um, that it impacts the future of society. Uh, there's so many frustrations, yes, that you'll have to overcome and so many uh, barriers to doing what you know is right. But Continue with that virtue. Um, keep that sense of altruism within you. Turn turn every challenge into uh, an opportunity. Uh, and understand that you are a, a resource. You are resourceful. You are capable. And remind yourself that in the most difficult times when you can't remember what that spinal tract innervates, that's okay. <laughs> you can look that up. But if your spirit says, I can look that up, I know how to find the answer, that's what's important. You have to trust yourself and just, you know, it's it's a process. It, it only is additive and it's the most beautiful thing that you can do for yourself, for your patients, for your communities, and ultimately 
by the world. Um, do it. <laughs> do it. You know. Thank you so uh, make much. It, that, make it something important. Yeah, yeah that, that's incredible advice. And I, I think it comes down to some of those simple, simple advice that we tend to forget. You know, it, it is about, you know, just perseverance and, and maintaining your spirit in this whole process and being grateful for the process as well uh, is number one. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights with our listeners today. I learned so much and I, and I hope my listeners learned as much as I did. Uh, thank you, Dr. Libby, for coming sure. on and hopefully we'll have you on again one day. Yeah, love to do it. And uh, good luck with this show and uh, the podcast. And I hope that uh, you have a great career as a physician. Thank you so much. That means a lot.